0: From TheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. This is Bernard Gersh from the Mayo Clinic, and with me is Dr. David Holmes. He and I started work at the Mayo Clinic roughly the same time, so we've been colleagues and academic collaborators and friends for a long time. And it's a pleasure to welcome David here, but particularly in his capacity as having almost completed a year as president of the American College of Cardiology. And David, what I'd really like you to do is sort of look from a distance and and just give us your views on the challenges facing cardiology and hopefully some of the opportunities.
1: Sure. Bernard, it's great to be here with you been a wonderful year thinking about those things. When you start out a year like this, you try to identify areas that you think could be improved, those areas where you would like to make a difference. In this particular case, those areas that I wanted to make a difference or try to make a difference were to bolster the importance, the central nature of science and education. As you think about different issues that face practices today, there are private practices and there are university practices, there are researchers and there are practitioners. Those elements that tie everybody together are science and education. Most of the time we went into medicine because we were interested in the science of it. And those two areas I think are ones that deserve incredible emphasis to make sure that we are bringing along the young kids to be involved with science and education as a lifelong mission. And so those two pillars have been unbelievably important. That's the first thing.
0: It's good to hear that, and it's really important to have it emphasized because we hear a lot about difficulties in the delivery of care and the reimbursement and the finances and what kind of health system we can or cannot afford. But it is important to emphasize that the science has never been better. I mean, it is really an exciting time in cardiology, even though we have to deal, obviously, with all of these other issues. But it's a very exciting time.
1: We now know more about things than we ever knew before. And that amount of information that comes out that you're interested in, that I'm interested in, that our patients are interested in, that society is interested, the opportunities are vast. It is clear that there are some research and funding and reimbursement issues that are problematic. We will solve those. We will address those. It's terribly important to do. But the amount of information that we have to bring to bear on cardiovascular disease is staggeringly wonderful. And this is sort of then a new era of science. Now, it's also a new era of education. Education has changed. It used to be when we gave lectures We gave lectures on what we wanted to lecture about to people that may or may not have been interested in what we wanted to lecture about. They're
0: always interested in what you have to say, David. Everybody's (laughs) interested in what you (laughs) you might be, but not everybody Uh, else. uh, Even if they don't (laughs) believe it, they say it. I mean, education is changing, and the college is certainly playing a lead in that. One of the driven by the opportunities
1: that you have is to in the planning of the national meeting, the international meeting, the annual meeting, is to say, I'm going to identify people and give them the reins and say to them, I want to focus on science and education on value to fellows, to established practitioners, to CCAs, to the whole medical community, a big tent. Make that happen. Change the educational strategies. I will give you whatever I can possibly give you to deliver on that so that people realize that the college is interested in the broad breadth of science and education and delivery of care in a rational way. Well,
0: I've certainly noticed, having participated in a number of the college courses and most recently the SNOMAS course, there are real changes. It's very much more case-based. It's also question and answer. There's Pre test questions, but post test questions. But then what is really interesting is there's the follow up. How has this changed your practice?
1: It's interesting
0: three months' time or six months' time when we get the answers.
1: That there are three different broad groups of learner strategies. Suppose you're a young kid with your mother in the kitchen. Your mother says, Do not touch the stove, it will burn your hand. One group of people listens to their mother. There's a second group of people that stand in the kitchen and they watch their brother put their hand on a hot (laughs) stove. And after that, they never touch a hot stove. And then there are a third group of people that say, well, it happened to my brother and my mother said I shouldn't do that, but gosh, may not happen to me, I'll try it myself. And they then never do it again after that. So there are different groups of strategies, whether you learn by having been told whether you learn by watching somebody else or whether you learn by experience yourself. And this annual meeting addresses all three of those learner strategies, which is really neat.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to it, and there are a lot of innovative sessions. So I thought this would start off being a rather depressing conversation. Now you're actually making me feel quite cheerful, but let's go back to the cold water. Mm-hmm. Those cold water. What are the problems that we face right sure. now, immediately, in the immediate
1: future? Mm-hmm. The immediate challenges are, number one, that the health care system is not sustainable as it is. We cannot continue to pour resources and have there be such variability in care. It's of interest that we are told that the United States doesn't do as well from the worldwide standpoint in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. We are not told that Minnesota as a whole, as a unit, is the second best healthcare system in the world. Really? Our information on that in terms of results, it's the second best. Now, when you then combine that with other areas of the United States that are much worse than that, you then get an average. So there are pockets within the United States where the healthcare is superb.
0: So it's very interesting because I've been very interested for years now in cardiovascular disease in the developing world. And I often talk about India and China where you have very sophisticated medicine uh, side by side with unsophisticated medicine and you also have patients dying of cardiovascular disease but patients dying of nutritional disease and I've always emphasized the sort of diversity within a country but we don't talk about it in terms of the United States and then when we look at the stroke belt and the coronary disease belt going down through the Appalachians down into the south there are very big differences in outcomes, rates of disease, mortality.
1: And it seems to be more than just Lutherans. <laughs> so the other thing that's incredibly interesting is that there's a global healthcare systems. And so for the very first time, non-communicable diseases will cause more deaths worldwide than communicable diseases. Yep. And there is a huge United Threefold, Nations okay. initiative based upon number one, good water, number two, less salt, number three, less trans fats, number four, tobacco cessation that if those were to be put into place globally, the incidence of cardiovascular disease would drop by as much as 20%, which is a huge opportunity. It's a huge challenge, but a huge opportunity. And then you add
0: to that social engineering, so as to design cities where people can exercise, where air pollution, I never realized air pollution is such a huge risk factor. But immediately for us as cardiologists, I mean, we surely are going to face changes in reimbursement. If we know, I mean, we are already.
1: We certainly are. We are going to have to face the fact that we're going to have to match the specific test, the specific treatment strategy with the specific patient. And so we will have to design the best strategy that says there will be some patients that can be treated medically without any invasive or non-invasive testing. And there will be other patients in whom we'll have to go to the mat for. But we will have to select it rather than have a system of care that says do every single test, and then sort of sort through at the very end. We will have to up front manage patients more on an individual basis, and so to a certain extent, that is personalized, individualized care of the patient.
0: You and I have actually written about this several years ago and said we are probably overutilizing procedures, and in particular PCI and certain forms of imaging studies. I think it's fair to state that we are overutilizing, and we don't really know what the appropriate utilization is, but I think we all have a feeling that we do too much. We also said, words to the effect, that this train is starting to leave the station, and if we don't take responsibility for it, someone else who's not a physician is going to tell us what to do. That would be a tragedy. So the college yeah. has really <clears throat> taken notice of this with appropriateness that is a criteria. a
1: complex area. We say that we're over it by virtue of the fact that it does not appear to save lives. The next piece of information to say is that total knee replacements in the United States do not save lives. Right. They make you feel better. They let you to ski like you like to ski. The incidence of total knee replacement in people from 55 to 65 has quadrupled in the past 10 years. In the past, it was 75 and older. People then up until 75 said, well, you know, I'm okay just sitting around. Society now says that is not the case. Despite the fact now that total knee replacement doesn't improve your longevity, it improves your quality of life, you're able to do more. So if you then say, and so this is where it gets complex in terms of PCI, if PCI leads you to have less angina and be more active, It's not a hard endpoint, but from the patient standpoint, and it's an important endpoint, you're not going to live any longer than God intended you to live, but we need to make sure that we're using the right metrics to evaluate whatever test we do. And and that's an important point. So how do you
0: and the college get the payers together to agree with you that we are using the right metrics they utilize the appropriateness criteria i mean they they're not perfect but they look pretty good and they've changed over the last three four years certain procedures considered inappropriate and are considered uncertain and so on how do you get them to trust us say leave it to us we agree that we have to do the right test on the right patient we have to do the right procedure for the right patient you must trust
1: us sure that's a great question number one we need to make sure that our members trust us. So the appropriate use criteria are then published and some people say, gosh, I have a really high use of inappropriate procedures, but I don't believe that in my records. One of the things that we need to look at the inappropriate use is to say, what are the boundaries of inappropriate use? Should the boundaries be 0 to 50 percent? Should it be around a bell-shaped curve that is 10 to 15 percent? There will always be procedures that you have to justify more carefully. For example, this is a real example. There was a man in his early 40s that was seen, and I was told that the physician was going to do an inappropriate procedure right up front. I said, well, can you tell me a little bit about it? He's a tennis pro. He's in his early 40s. He has proximal right coronary artery disease. He has pain when he tries to be a tennis pro.
0: There's nothing inappropriate about that.
1: Now, when he takes a beta blocker, he cannot do his job as well. And so if you were to say the you have to be on a beta blocker and an ACE inhibitor and nitroglycerin before that is appropriate or at least uncertain to do a PCI procedure, well, in somebody like that, you have to personalize it. Yeah, you see, what I would
0: say that patient has symptoms that are interfering with the quality of his life and the medications are not being tolerated.
1: That's all we have to say, but that's as much as we have to say. And if we do not say that, then... Somebody will look at that and say, well, it's inappropriate. You didn't give him maximal therapy. And so what is incumbent upon us as a society is to identify the specific variables in specific patients and say, these are the reasons I made these decisions. And then those are decisions when they're carefully reached are decisions that then we then bring to the public, to the insurance company, and say, these are the reasons for that. And then we rely on the fact that they're not interested in making people suffer, everybody's right. interested in well-being. Right. We have to then be good members of society, and we need to expect them and demand that they also be good members of society. Thank you so much, David. It's been great to have you.
0: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.